Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover chapter 4, 1 Peter, verses 1 through 11. I've chosen to entitle it, Suffering in the Flesh and End Time Ethics. Now, we'll see when we get to end time, it's ambiguous as to what is it is the end time of, the end time of the world, or the end time of the Jewish world, but end time ethics sounds good. Our context is this, suffering. At the very end of 1 Peter 2b, I entitled that section, Submission and Suffering. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 12, first part of 1 Peter 3, Suffering for Righteousness Sake. The end of 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 22, Suffering for Righteousness Sake. And now in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11, 11, Suffering in the Flesh. So Peter has a lot about suffering. I also need to remind ourselves that Peter also has a lot about hope, too. But he has a lot about suffering. So we start in verse 1, 1 Peter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve, because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. What's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's referring back to 1 Peter 3.18, where Peter said, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. Put to death in his body, but his body was made alive, i.e. resurrected. And the purpose of all that was that he might deliver you from your sins. He might bring you to God because he suffered for sins the righteous for the unrighteous. Therefore, verse 1, 1 Peter 4, therefore, because he suffered for sins once for all, 1 Peter 3, 18, therefore, in 1 Peter 4, 1, since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve. So there's another example of Peter using Christ as an, as an example. Jesus suffered in the flesh. You guys need to suffer in the flesh also. Why? Because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. Now, 1 Peter 3.18 is not the last verse of 1 Peter 3. There's verses 19 through 22, which talks about Jesus going and making a proclamation to the spirits in prison. And we know that's an extremely difficult and controversial section. But it's a parenthesis. It sort of runs off the topic of Jesus suffering in the flesh. It's interesting that a parenthesis could cause so much theological discussion. Now, Jesus suffered in the flesh. And now Peter here is emphasizing suffering for doing good. There's two kinds of suffering, suffering for doing evil and suffering for doing good. Peter in the last chapter said, don't you suffer for doing evil, only suffer for doing good. And now Jesus, of course, suffered for doing good. He suffered in the flesh. That's referring to Jesus' physical suffering on the cross. Equip yourselves also with the same resolve. Now, what does same resolve mean? To suffer physically for doing good as Jesus suffered in the flesh, so you guys need to suffer physically, i.e. by being whipped, putting in jail. Or does it just mean suffering in general for doing good? Or does it mean that you suffer in your flesh, meaning that the, the, that part of you which pulls you to sin needs to suffer and get mortified, as Paul says in Romans 8. So there's different options as exactly what does that mean to arm, equip yourselves with the same resolve to suffer in the flesh even as Jesus did. I think, personally, that Peter is exhorting his believers to steal themselves against the fact that they might be physically persecuted because, after all, Peter is mainly writing to Jews, and Jews were being persecuted by their unbelieving brothers. Now, of course, these Jews were in Anatolia. They weren't in Jerusalem. But we know that the Jewish synagogues, even in the diaspora, would punish punish believing Jews. So I think that's what Peter's talking about, although it's not perfectly clear. 
Now, the reason that Christians are supposed to equip themselves with the same resolve to suffer in the flesh is because the one who suffered in the flesh, that was Jesus, has finished with sin. At least, it sounds like it's Jesus has finished with sin. That's one of the options there. Jesus suffered in the flesh physically, thus doing away with the power and penalty of sin. Well, maybe, maybe. Adam Clark denies that. John Gill suggests it might be true. I will point out to you that verse 2, the very next verse, is talking about the Christian. In order to live the time remaining in the flesh no longer for human desires but for God's will, that's the Christian that's not that's finished with sin. So I don't think when, when Peter says in verse 1, because the one who suffered in the flesh is finished with sin, that the one who suffered from the flesh is not referring to Jesus. He's referring to the one who imitates Jesus, the Christian. Now what does it mean to be finished with sin? It means you are able to do away with the sin in your life. The Christian has his flesh mortified by believing in the Holy Spirit, as John Gill says. Now, there's some other options as to what this means, to be finished with sin. It could be that because the Christian is suffering in the flesh physical, physically with physical persecution, Peter is using an analogy. Jesus suffered in the flesh, and he destroyed sin's bondage. Likewise, we destroy sin's bondage over us when we suffer in the flesh, when we suffer persecution. Because when one is physically suffering, one does not care about temptations of the world. Here's a quotation from Adam Clark. Quote, The man who suffers generally reflects on his ways, is humbled, fears approaching death, loathes himself because of his past iniquities, and ceases from them. For in a state of suffering, the mind loses its relish for the sins of the flesh, because they are embittered to him through the apprehension which he has of death and judgment. And on his application to God's mercy, he is delivered from his sin. All right, so that's one option. The one who is the Christian who has suffered physical persecution is finished with sin because he does not interested in it anymore because of, of his sufferings. All right, so being finished with sins, let's go through some options. Let me back up a little bit and recap. Being finished with sin, it could be that Jesus suffered in the flesh and is finished with sin because he put an end to it, or it could be the Christian. That's option one. Option two, it's the Christian suffers in the flesh physically through persecution and therefore is not interested in sin anymore, so he puts an end to sin. That's option two. And option three, the Christian has his flesh, has his flesh to suffer. And when his flesh suffers, that's his, that's the same thing as Paul says, mortify the deeds of your flesh. You don't you put to death the deeds of your flesh, and so that's the way your flesh suffers, and that way you put an end to sin. So that's three options right there. Here's option number four. This is an option which Adam Clark denies, but suggests it. If one suffers death rather than apostatizing, he saves himself from the sin of apostasy. So the verse would read like, read like this. Because the one who was suffered in the flesh... In other, words, in other words, the one who suffers physical persecution is finished with the sin of apostasy. The one who suffered in the flesh by dying is finished with the sin of apostasy. That's, that's off the wall, and no, that's not it. So I think it's the one who suffered in the flesh. is not Jesus suffering in the flesh, but it's the Christian because of the context in the next verse. And he's finished with sin either because his persecutions make him not be interested in sin anymore or because he is suffering in the flesh in the theological sense of the word. That pull in us that pulls us to sin, once that gets, once that suffers, then you don't have that pull to sin anymore, so you're finished with sin. Either way, I believe it's Jesus, that Christians suffer in the flesh, and that's the way we get rid of sin. And it could be a combination of the both, both because if you suffer physical persecution, then likewise your flesh is probably going to suffer 
Your, your desire to sin is going to suffer. That's the same thing. He's saying your flesh is suffering. Talk to anybody who's been, any Christian who's been through suffering, tell them how interested they are in sinning. They don't have enough energy to. 1 Peter 4, verses 2 through 4 continues. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, that, of course, is in the middle of a sentence. So let me go back and pick it up in verse at the end of verse 1. The one who has suffered in the flesh, let me read the whole verse. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve, because the one who suffered in the flesh is finished with sin. That's, that's a parenthesis. So let me go back to the main thought here. Equip yourselves also with the same resolve. Verse 2. Same resolve. Verse 2. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh. So you, you equip yourself with a resolve to live the remaining time in the flesh. The remaining time of your life in the flesh. No longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the pagans choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. So they are surprised that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. Okay, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the pagans choose to do, different time. The remaining time in the flesh is your post-conversion life, Time that's already been spent in doing what the pagans do, that's your pre-conversion time. And what you did before you got saved was <clears throat> unrestrained behavior, just like pagans do today. You look at a typical carousing scene in a movie, they're doing the exact same things they did back in Peter's time. Evil desires, here's some examples, Gil says, fornication, adultery, incest, and sodomy, and bestiality. That's the kind of stuff, well, Gil doesn't say bestiality, I added that in there, but you know, that's the sort of stuff that people do. I think the difference today is they didn't write it into the law and say that this is moral. They kind of winked at it. Drunkenness, orgies, carousing, lawless, idolatry. Now, the fact that Peter condemns idolatry and says some of his readers used to be idols, this makes many people think that Peter was addressing Gentiles as well as Jews. We know from verse 1 of the book, he was writing to the diaspora in Anatolia, Asia Minor, Asia, well, the whole not just Asia Minor, but the whole province of Anatolia, present-day Turkey. He was writing to Jews in the dispersion, but here he's writing to people who had succumbed to idolatry. Now, Jews didn't do idolatry after the Babylonian exile. John Gill says, well, that might be true, but the Jews could have been led into idolatry by going to feasts in the home of Gentile friends. Yeah, maybe. Or it could be that Jews were being idolatrous even though they're basic culture was opposed to idolatry after the Babylonian exile. You might have individual Jews doing it. I don't know. But at any rate, bad stuff going on. So they are surprised. That means the carousers, the pagans. The pagans are surprised that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of wild living. Now that's one thing about pagans. They are not content to live in their darkness and let you live in your light. They are intent on extinguishing the light. They are intent on seducing you into their wild ways of living. Why don't you take a sniff of this, a snort of this? Wouldn't you like to drink? Wouldn't you like to drink? Come on, let's go to the sex club, to the strip club. You know, they don't want you to live your life. Now, of course, if you just tell them straight out, no, I'm not, I don't. I think that's a total waste of time. It's juvenile. It's destructive of human existence, and it's it's stupid. And if you would do that, they'd probably leave you alone. But no, if you start playing around with that kind of stuff, they'll just keep right on after you. And then, of course. Because they're guilty, they have to be guilty because they've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They start blaming you for holding up a standard of righteousness to them, and they blame you instead of themselves. You've got to blame somebody, and they're not going to blame themselves, or they'll blame you. They slander you. 
Peter says at the end of verse 4. The NIV Study Bible suggests that the Christian's refusal to engage in carousing and so forth and orgies could have caused the suffering Peter talks about. Oh, you're not going to do this stuff with you? Well, we're going to come after you and call you goody two-shoes, make fun of you. 1 Peter 4, 5, they, the pagans, will give an account of the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Give an account, that's judgment. And if it wasn't for the judgment of God, human beings would destroy themselves. I guarantee you. History is replete with examples of that. Human beings who can't stand, who cannot withstand their own licentiousness, they end up destroying themselves. Look at the, look at Nero. Look at the glutton Vitellius, who was the last Roman emperor before Vespasian. He would send out troops to all of the far corners of the Roman Empire to bring back delicacies so he could pork them down. He ate four times a day. He didn't last. He was assassinated. So. There's going to be judgment, and not only judgment in this life, but a judgment at the end of the world. Judgment Day is something that's even in our culture. We know what the term Judgment Day means. Let's look at some scriptures, Acts 17, 31. Because he has set a day, a time, a day, when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. That's God's going to do it. He's going to do it by Jesus or through Jesus. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So when you see Jesus resurrected that, and you see Jesus getting ready to judge at the end of time, Romans 2, 5, But because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Again, in Romans 2, verse 16, On the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. So the gospel includes judgment, folks, and that is something the wussy-pussy modern evangelical American church has almost completely forgotten because they don't read their Bible. They're too busy going to meetings and planning programs and raising money and figuring out how to be sinner-friendly. Oh, excuse me, seeker-friendly. So we know now from these verses that Jesus both Jesus the Son, both God the Son and God the Father judge on Judgment Day. First Peter 4, 5, it's Jesus, the one who stands ready to judge. That's Jesus. And then Acts 17, 31, he is set a day when he, God, is going to judge, judge the world by the man he is appointed. That's by Jesus. So there we got Jesus judging the world. And then Romans 2, 16, on that day when God judges what people have kept secret, God judges the world. So either way, God the Father, God the Son, there will be a judgment day. And notice that who's going to get judged, the living and the dead? That's because there are going to be some people still alive at the return of Christ. They'll be judged, as also the dead will be judged. First Peter 4, 6, For this reason the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, that those who are now is in brackets in the Holman Christian Study Bible, so I'm going to leave them out because it affects the interpretation here in just a minute. For this reason, the gospel is also preached to the dead, so that although they might be judged by men in the fleshly realm, they might live by God in the spiritual realm. Now, this little verse, this, let, me, let me tell you what Adam Clark says about this quote. There are as many different translations of this verse and comments upon it as there are translators and commentators. In other words, there ain't a lot of unity on interpretation when it comes to this verse. So I'm going to come up with, I think it was seven different possible interpretations, which is... It's a pain, but we'll, we'll, we'll go through it. For this reason, the gospel was preached to the dead. What reason? Well, probably the reason is listed at the end of verse 6, that they might live by God in the spiritual realm. The gospel was preached to the dead so they might live. That's the NIV Study Bible's opinion or option. Another option is the gospel was preached so that the dead might be judged, so that they might give an account. John Gill denies that. 
could be both. Gospels preach so the righteous would live and the wicked will be judged, since there is both salvation and judgment in the Gospels, could be both. But at any, reason, at any rate, for this reason, the Gospels also preach to the dead. Now, the dead could be physically dead, or it could be spiritually dead, and the commentator split on that, and I'll show you why in just a minute. So that they, the dead, might be judged by men in the fleshly realm. Now, here's where the trouble comes, the splits of opinion. I've got seven different options for what that might mean, the combinations of dead and judged. So let's get at it. First of all, I'm going to divide these options up into two sections. One, I'm going to say, what does it mean to be judged if the dead means spiritually dead? And then I'm going to say, what does it mean to be judged if dead means physically dead? So let's start with dead meaning spiritually dead. Option number one, spiritually dead non-believers are judged for their sins by either a court of law or a law of conscience. As Albert Barnes says, quoting Doddridge, quote, they might be brought to such a state of life as their carnal neighbors would look upon as a kind of condemnation and death. So we would read it this way. The Gospels preach to these pagan carousers and orgy goers. They're spiritually dead. Why? That even though that their friends will say they're dissolute and debauched and they're pathetic and they're dissolute and I don't want my daughter to marry him, despite them being in that bad a shape, the gospel is going to make them live by God in the spirit. That's possible. I don't believe it, but it is possible. That's option number one. Non-believers are judged. Dead, spiritually dead non-believers. Now let's look at Christians who used. That's option number two, which refers to Christians who used to be spiritually dead. All right. Option number two, a Christian who used to be spiritually dead is judged by carousers after they get saved. And, and they are judged by the carousers for not carousing also. As we read in verse 4, they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. So slandering the Christians is judging them. So that option has the advantage of context. So the judgment would come after the spiritually dead carouser gets saved and not before he's judged verbally by his fellow former carousers who don't get saved but instead spend their time slandering the Christian. Well, that's possible. In fact, I, probably, I think that's probably... That makes sense to me because it, it appeals to the context. They slander you. The gospel was preached to the dead. You dead Christians, you get saved so that you saved Christians will be judged by men in the flesh of the realm, by your former fellow carousers. They slander you. But you who were formerly dead now might live in the spiritual realm. All right, that's option number two. Option number three, talking about Christians again, not non-believers. And again, we're talking about spiritually dead. So we're talking about spiritually. Christians who used to be spiritually dead, but now they are disciplined, i.e. judged, by Christ now, so as not to be judged at the end of time. Here's what John Gill says. These former carousers who are now saved have the judgments of God, quote, have the judgments of God inflicted on them in their flesh, in their bodies, for some sins of theirs, and therefore they suffer what they do in the flesh, vengeance pursuing them, being ignorant that when they are judged, as they reckon it, they are only chastened by the Lord in a fatherly way, that they might not be eternally condemned with the world. So what this option says is the gospel was preached to 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 Christians who were to people who are now Christians but who used to be spiritually dead, so that now when they are judged they are disciplined in their fleshly realm, 
And the purpose of that discipline is that they might live by God in the spiritual realm. Again, that's possible. I don't think it's likely, but that's possible. That's, that's John Gill's solution. All right, so that's three options if the dead who are being judged are spiritually dead. It could be spiritually dead non-believers who are judged by their fellow non-believers. It could be spiritually dead, formerly spiritually dead Christians. And if it's formerly dead, spiritually dead Christians, their judgment could either be being chastised by their former carousers, being slandered by them, or it could be formerly dead Christians being disciplined by the things that fleshly men do to them, or or, or disciplined by what God does to them. All right, so there's three options. Hmm, I said I had seven options. I've only got six. That'll make it a little bit easier. Now let's look at this verse and and consider that the word dead means physically dead. Let me read it again. The gospel was also preached to those preached to the physically dead, so that although although they might be judged by men in the fleshly realm, they might live by God in the spiritual realm. Physically dead. All right, here's first option under physically dead. Christian martyrs were judged by being killed. Now, this makes sense because Peter is much interested in encouraging those he's writing to. This is an option I got from Barnes. So it would read this. This reason the gospel was, was preached to Christian martyrs who were physically dead. So even though they might be judged, i.e. killed by men in the flesh of the realm when they got killed, they might live by God in the spiritual realm when they're resurrected from the dead. That's reasonable enough. Option number two, under the assumption that dead means physically dead, sinners in Hades who were preached after Jesus is de- preached to after Jesus' descent into Hades. Now, of course, this assumes that you believe that doctrine. I consider the doctrine basically, I don't want to say nonsense because so many, you know, so many people believe it, reputable people believe it, but I still think it's nonsense. I just don't believe it. Let's put it this way. You read Grudem, he doesn't believe it. He's pretty, he's pretty much of a heavy hitter. Lots of people don't believe it. But at any rate, if you do believe it, this is the way the reverse would read. For this reason, the gospel was preached to the dead in Hades. It was preached to them after Jesus died on the cross and was, was before he was resurrected. In that period, that three-day period before he was resurrected, Jesus went down to the dead and preached to them. For this reason, the gospel was preached to the dead as Jesus went down there and preached to them so that although they might be judged by men in the flesh of the realm, in other words, although they might be dead, killed, they might be lived by God in the spiritual realm so they have a chance to get born again while they're down there in Hades. Well, I don't believe that, but I'm not going to go over the... That was the last audio when I went over the particular weaknesses of that descent into hell view. Now, there's another view of... That passage at the end of the last chapter, First Peter 3, about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison, like Noah did. He preached through Noah. Noah was the object lesson. The ark was salvation. The water was judgment. The antediluvians were judged when the gospel was announced by Noah. That's option number three. They were condemned in the flesh that they might live in the spirit, as Adam Clark says. So let's go back and read it that way. 1 Peter 4, 6 would read this, for this reason, this way, for this reason, the gospel was also preached to the antediluvian acquaintances of Noah. They're dead. They're dead now. So that's who the gospel was preached to. So that although they might be judged by, judged in the fleshly realm, in other words, judged when the flood came and wiped them out, they might live by God in the spiritual realm. The object of preaching to them was to get them saved so that they might live by God. Of course, they didn't really do it because they didn't repent, but... That was the purpose of the preaching of the gospel to them. 
And that's reasonable, too, but I really don't believe it. There's a problem here in, the, in my translation, the Holman Christian Study Bible. It says that these physically dead antediluvians, dead at the time that Peter was writing, they were judged by men in the flesh realm, but actually they were judged by God. Well, again, translation comes in here because the ESV doesn't say judged by men. It says judged in the flesh, the way people are. So they were judged in their flesh when God sent the flood, according to that view. So once again, you see the translation. You can kind of take any translation you want to fit the particular option you take on what this means. So let me summarize the whole thing. I got three options that say that the dead is spiritually dead. The gospel is preached to those who are now spiritually dead or who, who at least used to be spiritually dead. Either non-believers, spiritually dead, judged, and were judged by their neighbors for being dissolute. Option number one. Option number two, the spiritually dead Christians. They used to be spiritually dead Christians, but now they're judged in the present by carousers who slander them for not carousing. Option number three, Christians who used to be spiritually dead had the gospel preached to them so that when they are disciplined, when they are judged in the flesh, that means when they are disciplined in their Christian life, so they won't be suffered judgment for that at the end of at the final judgment so that's three options if dead is spiritually dead if dead is physically dead it refers to christian martyrs who were judged by being killed so the gospel is preached to those who are physically dead so that they were judged in the flesh by being killed but then they will live to god and the spirit option number two under physically dead the gospel is preached to physically dead sinners in hades so that while they were suffered in the flesh by being dead they would live again and rise again in the spirit. Uh, and option number three, a physically dead, it means the physically dead antediluvians would judge when the gospel was announced by Noah. He preached the gospel by building that ark. And then they became condemned in the flesh by the flood that drowned them so that they might live in the spirit. There's your six option, folks. I report. You decide. First Peter 4, 7. Now the end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and disciplined for prayer. Now, this little section is going to be what I call end-time ethics. I got that from the Holman Christian Study Bible captions. End-time ethics, but there's a problem. When you hear the word end-time, you think the end of the world, right? Well, there's a big problem with that. Now, because end of all things might refer to the end of the world, but it also might refer to the end of all things Jewish. John Gill suggests that. Clark actually affirms it. says, no, it's referring to the end of the Jewish political state, the geopolitical Israel that existed back then, the end of the Jewish temple. It was destroyed in AD 70, Peter wrote in the 60s. Now the end of all things is near. Well, there you go. Near makes perfect sense, especially to those who love to take the Bible literally, who are mainly dispensationalists who don't like what I'm saying here. They always say everything's at the end of the world because they're inveterate futurists. Here's what Adam Clark says about the end of all things. Quote, in a very few years after St. Peter wrote this epistle, even taking it at the lowest computation, viz. A.D. 60 or 61, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. To this destruction, which was literally then at hand, the apostle alludes, alludes when he says the end of all things is at hand. The end of the temple, the end of the Levitical priesthood, the end of the whole Jewish economy was then at hand. So I would ask, those of you who would take the end of all things as being the end of the world, what part of near do we not understand? The end of all things is near. Is 2,000 plus years, 2,000 years, and still counting, is that near? I don't think so. It's another near verse in James 5, 9. Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Some versions have the judge is near. So 
James was writing to Jews who were about to be delivered from the persecution in AD 70. He was writing a little bit earlier in the 40s, I think it was. The book of Hebrews is talking about when things, that which can be shaken will be shaken. Us upon whom the end of all the ages have come. Hebrews was written in the 60s. What is what, what was the author referring to? The end of the Jewish order, the end of all things Jewish, the temple economy, the priestly rituals, the city of Jerusalem. And I suggest to you too that Peter, who was also mainly writing to the Jews of the diaspora in the ninth, in the 60s, as Adam Clark points out, is talking about the end of the Jewish order. Therefore, because judgment's coming down, be serious and disciplined for prayer. And I'll tell you, there's nothing like judgment to focus one's mind. I think about that as I'm sitting in a country that's the United States of America and the United States of Sodom and Gomorrah, as Billy Graham's wife one time famously said, we are subject to judgment, and that tends to make one serious and disciplined for prayer. Here's an example of that, how judgment will make you serious and disciplined. Second Peter 3, 10 and 11, same Peter that wrote this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and I'm assuming that's the judgment on Jerusalem. The heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. The earth and, work on, and, and its works on it will be dissolved. The elements will be burned. That's stoicheon, stoicheon, stoicheon. I forgot the Greek form, the lexical form of the word. Stoicheon, I think is neuter. Its uh, uh, element is, and if you look it up in the scriptures in the New Testament, it always refers to something legal. And so it's talking about the legal system of the Jews being burned up and dissolved, not the world, not the planet Earth at the end of the world. It will be disclosed. And by the way, uh, this is not an off-the-wall interpretation. John Owen, the famous Puritan divine that taught at Cambridge in the 16th century, believed exactly the same thing. So all these things would be destroyed in this way. It is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. Now, my main point there is that whatever that judgment is, whether it's judgment at the end of the world or whether it's judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70, the destruction of all those things, in verse 11 in Second Peter 3, the destruction of all things, Peter says, shows that it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. So yeah, disaster tends to make you shape up. Peter says that Christians should be serious and disciplined. Serious, the NIV translates as clear-minded. Christians are to be characterized by reason, as according to the NIV Study Bible. They should make wise, mature decisions. They should have a clearly defined, decisive purpose in life. If not, if they don't have that, the tendency will be to frivolity, indifference, cynicism, and despair. That's my comment on the NIV's comment. You have a purpose in life or you don't have a purpose, bad things result. I said frivolity, indifference, cynicism, and despair. If you can't figure out what your purpose is, you tend to despair. Or if you finally figure out there's no way I'm ever going to find out my purpose in life, I'll just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I'm going to die. And this coming persecution, this coming judgment should make the Christian disciplined for prayer. The prayer, the NIV says self-controlled. Galatians 5.23, Paul says, talking about the fruits of the Spirit, gentleness, self-control is one of the fruits. We go to 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, maintain an intense love for each other since love covers a multitude of sins. Notice that intense love. Not just love, but intense love. That's Holman Christian Study Bible Translation. Let's look at some other scriptures about brotherly love. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. God teaches us to love our brothers. The mark of the Christian, you'll know they are Christians by their love. In fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers, to do so even more. 
love even more. Peter says, have an intense love for each other. First John 4, 7 through 11. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. That is the nature of God. That's one of the, that's a predicate adjective there, an attribute of God. God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son to the world that he might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice that love consists of not just a, a, an emotional feeling toward us that's positive, but love consists in the action that God did by sending Jesus to die on the cross to take away our sins because God is not only a God of love, he is a God of judgments, which, of course, the average wussy-pussy evangelical has completely forgotten. Now, there are some Reformed-type people out there that are preaching it, but other than that, not many. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Intense love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And what that means is, is that when your brother sins... You love him so much, you kind of it doesn't bother you. It doesn't cause you to breach your relationship with him if he sins. Now, of course, if it's continual sin, he refuses to stop and he refuses church discipline, and he is disciplined by the church and kicked out of the church and so forth. This verse is not meant to obviate all that. You have to take care of sin, but there's a lot of sins that you don't need to do church discipline on. A lot of your brother's failings that you just put up with because you love him and you don't care. You just accept him for who he is despite all of his failings. Love covers a multitude of sins. Let's see some scriptures that point that out. Proverbs 10:12. Hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. Matthew 18:21 through 22. Then Peter came to him and said, "Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as 7 times? I tell you, not as many as 7." Jesus said to him, "But 70 times 7." That's not meant to be taken literally. That's symbolic. Seven times ten. Ten is the number of completion. Seven is the divine number. Complete divine perfection. You keep on forgiving. First Corinthians 13.5. Love does not act improperly, is not selfish, is not provoked, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Not keeping a record of wrongs is the same thing as covering a multitude of sins. Ephesians 4.32. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Ooh, boy, when people do you dirty when they're Christians or when they do something that's not right and you may be too hypersensitive about it, whatever. I know a situation right now, a godly young Christian, about a year old, three of her sisters in Christ have gotten ticked off at her for something that's really not the sister's fault, and now they don't talk to one another. Well, God's going to judge that situation. He's going to get them back together because he's not going to let them sleep at night until they get it straight. Proverbs 17.9, whoever conceals an offense promotes love, but whoever gossips about it separates friends. In other words, you can see somebody that's doing something bad, go to him first. Don't tell everybody else, hey, this person's he's, he's getting ready to go out on a love trip with his secretary. No, go talk to him and say, hey, mate, buddy, maybe you better not do that. Don't gossip. Go to the brother that's sinning. Jameson Fawcett and Brown concludes the matter by saying, do not harshly condemn or expose faults. We go to verse 9 in 1 Peter 4. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Now, hospitality is a big deal in the ancient world and in the ancient and in the New Testament scriptures because if you travel, there, was, there weren't a lot of hotels back then, not a lot of motels. There were inns and most of them were whorehouses and, or flea hotels, nasty places. So the Christians would try to stay at other Christians' homes and, of course, people didn't know each other, so it was a problem. So... 
There's a lot of exhortation to hospitality. Romans 12:13. share with the saints and their needs. Pursue hospitality. Look after it. Chase it. 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer therefore must be above reproach the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and able teacher. Well, we know overseers and elders need to be teachers, but they are also supposed to be hospitable too. 1 Timothy 5, 10, and is well known for good works, that is, if she has brought up children, this is widows on the list, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. So a widow who is godly, she showed hospitality. Titus 1, 8, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, and self-controlled. I think that's qualifications for an elder again. 3 John 1, 5 through 8, dear friend, you are showing faithfulness by whatever you do for the brothers, especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love in front of the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. In other words, take care of them, give them food, give them drink, and send them out. Since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Pagans didn't show them hospitality, so you Christians need to show them hospitality. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we can be co-workers with the truth. Hebrews 13.2, don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Don't neglect to show hospitality. Pursue hospitality. As Paul says to the Romans, the author of Hebrews says, don't neglect to show hospitality. It's a big deal, folks. Now, we need to be the same way. When people need a place to stay, we need to give it to them. That doesn't mean that you take somebody in without a letter of recommendation. The early church sent letters to say this person is a good guy. It doesn't mean that you're stupid about it and bring people into your house. I remember I got a friend of mine who showed some hospitality to <laughs> to somebody one time and he woke up in the middle of the night, and the guy had a big kitchen knife out, and he, he, was, he was nuts in his head, and he was waving that thing around. And uh, fortunately, nothing happened, but this is the kind of thing that can happen. you got to be careful. First Peter 4.10, based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. Varied means that there are lots of different spiritual gifts. Use the gift that you got to help to serve other people. Serving Christians is one of the most exciting and fun and rewarding things that you can do. So be a good manager of the varied grace of God. Take care of that gift. Don't let the gift, you know, if somebody gives you money to make interest and you put it in a hole in the ground, you're not being a good manager. You need to put it out at interest, put it to work. Likewise, with your gift, you stick it in a hole in the ground. You don't use it to help other people. Well, you're not being a good manager. Here's some scriptures about the varied gifts. Romans 12, 4 through 8. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function in the same way we who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. If service and service, if teaching and teaching, if exhorting and exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Now there's body life in the church. Serve one another. They ain't nothing better. 1 Corinthians 12, 7-11, still talking about the variousness of gifts given to Christians. A demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the performing of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another different kinds of languages to another interpretation of languages, but one of the same spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. That's a classic case of the diversities of gifts. Now, gifts could mean supernatural gifts, as we've just been talking, but not all are supernatural. I think one of them was service, 
Romans 12, 7, if service and ter- service, teaching is not really supernatural. Exhorting is not supernatural. Giving is not supernatural. So you see, the non-supernatural gifts are important, just like the uh, charismatic supernatural gifts are. Leading is not supernatural. Showing mercy is not supernatural. So Romans 12 focuses on the natural gifts, and 1 Corinthians 12 focuses on the supernatural gifts. Both. It's not either or, folks. Both. Are you cessationist out there? Where does the Bible say that it's only the natural gifts that we're concerned with and that we shouldn't serve others with supernatural gifts? Where does it say that? Well, I don't want to get into cessationism, but I know what they say, and it's, and it's totally and completely erroneous. It's bunkum is what it is, and it's sad because it deprives Christians of some of the graces of God that God would love to give his people if they would just ask him for it instead of sticking their heads in the sand and reading erroneous theology. First Peter 4.11, if anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, if anyone speaks, it should be God's words. The NIV says the very words of God. The KGV has the oracles of God. The NIV Study Bible says the Greek here for words means the words that God has spoken, i.e. the scriptures. So if anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks the scripture. So that means if you teach, you teach the scripture. If you prophesy, you prophesy from the scripture or based on the scripture. You don't make things up according to your flesh, according to the devil, according to the world. This idea of God's words as being the oracles of God or the scriptures, Acts 7.38. He is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai talking about Moses and with our ancestors. He received, Moses received living oracles to give to us. Oracles are the spoken words of God. Romans 3, 2, considerable in every way. First they, what are the advantages the Jews have? Considerable in every way. First they were entrusted with the spoken words of God. And of course, the spoken words of God were the, the law of Moses on Mount Sinai. So speak God's words, speak according to the scripture. What kind of gifts Involves speaking God's words. Well, you got the obvious one, teaching. How about exhortation? How about prophecy? Whenever those gifts are exercised, they should be according to God's words, according to the Scripture. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now finished First Peter 4, verses 1 through 11. In our next audio, we'll take up First Peter 4, verses 12 through 19, which I will entitle Suffering as a Christian, as Peter does another reprise on that theme of suffering which is all through his letter i hope you stay tuned for that audio and i hope you enjoyed this one